Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. And we'll be reading from the entire chapter. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a, writ, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. It's God's word for God's people today. You may be seated, and let's pray once again and ask for his help. So, Father, we ask that you would now help us to see wonderful things in your word, that it would come alive to us, that you would show us our great need and the greater solution that you sent for the glory of your name. Amen. One of the great blessings of pastoral ministry is hearing the stories of God's grace in his people's lives. And that's often amplified as the year draws to a close and we reflect back upon all that has transpired. Now our lives are mostly filled with mundane events which aren't the things mentioned when asked about your year. You tell of the defining moments, the events that stand above all the others, the forks in the road that altered the course of your year. And that's also true for the course of our lives. 
each of us has or will have defining moments that determine the direction of our lives. And sometimes we choose those forks in the road. There's good options in front of us and we choose one of them and our life goes that way, not that way. And other times these life-impacting moments are thrust upon us, which is the kind of moment we come to in Esther chapter 4. It's a turning point in this book. It's the hinge on which the entire narrative and, in fact, world history turns. So much so that we're still reading about this moment thousands of years later when one woman found herself in the middle of a life-altering moment with her fate and the fate of her people in her hands and her hands alone. And so far, we've followed the falling dominoes from the beginning of this book all the way through chapter 3 with the author simply telling how each domino falls into the next and then into the next and then into the next as we head towards the domino which will come to define the lives of all the characters in Esther and we'll see how God was working silent though he is in this book. He's still working silently to pour out his redemptive power and grace upon all his people. And so, brothers and sisters, whether or not we ever come to know why the dominoes of life fall the way they do for you, we can confidently know that God is our faithful and good Father. And no domino can separate us from his sovereign, loving providence. And even when we can't see God's providential hand at work, we can be certain that he is an absent we can be sure that even when we don't know what God is doing, God always does. And so those are helpful reminders as we launch into chapter 4. And we'll see three things. Grief in the streets, peace in the palace, and a need for a mediator. Grief in the streets, peace in the palace, and the need for a mediator. So first, grief in the streets. We see weeping, wailing, loud, bitter, cries and mourning throughout the entire 127 provinces of the empire. Because as you remember from chapter 3, and as we just heard read, as, Haman, or as uh, Mordecai recounts it to Hathak, Haman the Agagite, an enemy of the Jews, lied and bribed King Ahasuerus into issuing a genocidal edict calling for the annihilation of God's people in 11 months' time. The edict was the fruit of Haman's fury against Mordecai not bowing or paying homage, which he says he didn't do so because he was a Jew. And last week, we spent some time looking at the way that pointed to a more ancient enmity between God's people and their great enemy, Satan, and his offspring. Since Genesis 3, the serpent has looked for ways to destroy the seed of the woman so the serpent crusher wouldn't be born. So the hostility in Esther isn't simply Haman against Mordecai. It's an Agagite against a Benjaminite, an Amalekite against an Israelite, all the way back to the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. And in Esther's time, this was just another attempt by the serpent to wipe out God's people so the serpent crusher is never born. But surprisingly, for the first time in this book, in Esther 4, Mordecai identifies with God's people. 
He openly identifies with God's people. He not only hears the edict, but somehow or another, we're not told how, just, he just happened to find out all that occurred between Haman and the king. And it strikes him to his core. The description in verse 1 is emphatic. He tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He goes into the streets wailing loudly and bitterly. This man, whose very name means worshiper of Marduk, who's been presented as someone very assimilated into Persian culture, doesn't distance himself from God's people when the death edict is issued. He, in fact, goes out publicly in solidarity with them. Mordecai does what God's people do in their grief throughout the Old Testament when calamity strikes. He tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and wails loudly and bitterly. Now, usually in the Old Testament, when this type of grief shows up and these actions are portrayed, it's after calamity strikes. What do you notice about these actions in Esther chapter 4? They occur when? Before it strikes. It's out of the normal order of things. It would be like you showing up to the family Christmas gathering, but dressed in your funeral black rather than your ugly sweater. And you're weeping and wailing for the, loud, or for the death of the oldest family member in your family who actually isn't dead yet. And you're sitting next to them on the couch, drinking you know, your eggnog and eating Christmas cookies. And they say, I'm not dead yet. Don't put me in the ground too soon. This display in Esther 4 points to the fact that even though this genocide is 11 months away, the edict is so irrevocable and tied to the world's greatest power, it's as if the slaughter has already occurred. In other words, they're, they're really as good as dead. So they might as well grieve like it. They mourn, and fast, weep, lament, and wear sackcloth and ashes. We see these actions throughout the empire. But one of the things that's striking is the absence of what Mordecai does not do. The author tells us a lot of things he does do, but one thing that he doesn't. He doesn't mention that Mordecai prays. Now again, to be fair, we're not told that he doesn't pray. And many, many people and commentators believe prayer is omitted because it's just simply assumed. Prayer is often tied to fasting. But that doesn't seem to do justice to the author of Esther, nor to the many other Old Testament texts that actually include crying out to God when these other activities of grief are mentioned. And so we're not told Mordecai does or doesn't go to God in prayer, but we are actually told where he does go. He goes to the king's gate. The author gives no motive or judgment upon Mordecai for going there rather than anywhere else, but we're told he goes wailing loudly and bitterly to the place of political power and Esther's residence. 
Now, normally, as we've seen in the previous chapters, he can get inside and quite close to where Esther resides. But dressed as he is, this is as close as he can get without transgressing another of the king's command that mourners aren't allowed inside. And actually, his plan works. Word does get to Esther. And as we'll see in a moment, that's why Mordecai goes here. And he goes here, which is puzzling, in light of another striking absence of Jewish life. We're told in chapter 3 that the day this issue was, uh, the day this edict was issued was actually the first day of the Passover celebration. Mordecai and the Jews in, Suda, Jews in Susa uh, were probably supposed to be preparing for Passover. Maybe some were, but we're told rather than following the, the rituals of Jewish life and the Passover celebration, Mordecai goes to the king's gate, which is another striking absence here. And one author says this, uh, so at a time when the great deeds of the Exodus would have been retold, when God's sovereignty over foreign death threats would have been proclaimed, when the deliverance of Israel would have been relished, we're not told that Mordecai or the Jews in Susa show trust or confidence in God. So let me address why I think it's important to note the absence of prayer and Passover in the very context where we begin to see Mordecai unassimilate from the culture he lives in. We see him unassimilating, yet not doing the things that would show he has trust or confidence in God in the very same moments. I think that shows us that we're mixed bags, aren't we? Like even on our best days, even when we begin the day in fellowship with God, in communion with God, in worship of God, hearts soaring in glory with God, we still muck things up. And later in the day, we'll find ourselves not doing the things we want to do and doing the things we don't want to do. And so Mordecai starts aligning himself with God's people, but then rather doing the very thing that would instill a great confidence in the great redemptive powers of God in relishing his past salvific efforts against all odds, the greatest army in the world bearing down on God's people the very moment they would be celebrating God's past deliverance, which would instill such great confidence in this moment. He goes to the palace of the earthly king and not to the throne room of the king overall. And the absence of prayer stands out because it seems the author's purpose is to keep showing us that God is always at work to accomplish every single one of his purposes and fulfill every single one of his promises, not because his people finally put it all together, but in spite of them never doing so, and especially when they don't. Friends, God's decision to save his people isn't based on the quality of their faith or the greatness of their faithfulness, but solely based on the greatness of his faithfulness. God saves because he's steadfastly committed to keeping his promises, even, and maybe especially when Esther wants us to see. 
when his people are at their very worst. And that's no excuse to keep on being a mixed bag and not work out your salvation with fear and trembling and into the freedom that's ours in Jesus Christ. But that's actually the pathway out of it, to keep trusting and seeing God's hand at work, his steadfast commitment to you to make you and save you in Jesus Christ. And so next we see Mordecai's grief in the street is then contrasted, secondly, with peace in the palace. Peace in the palace. Mordecai's grieving does get the attention of who he wanted it to get the attention of, and so the palace staff then relay Mordecai's actions to Esther, and she's greatly distressed about Mordecai, and so she sends him new clothes. Now, grief is a very difficult thing, isn't it? It's a hard road to walk yourself, and it's a hard road, hard road to walk with someone who is grieving. We want to do whatever we can to help someone through it. And maybe in our, in our uh, colloquial way of saying things, we don't want to just send thoughts and prayers. We actually want to really do something. But that far too often leads us to give pat answers or superficial solutions. No one uh, that I know ever intends to be unhelpful or worse, compound the grieving one's grief. But offering answers shouldn't be our first response to grief. I think that's why Paul says in Romans 12, we should weep with those who weep. And we see in Esther 4 that a life of ease and comfort can make us callous, can make us callous to the painful realities of living in this broken world. A life of ease and comfort makes entering into someone's grief very difficult. And if we're honest with ourselves, our Western way of life is built on comfort and ease, and which doesn't lend itself to the vulnerability needed to take on the weighty emotional burden of our grieving brothers and sisters. It doesn't lead itself to the vulnerability needed to walk with them before God in their grief. And another reason we offer superficial solutions to grief is because we forget that grieving, biblically, isn't actually opposed to praising God. In fact, God teaches his people how to praise him in their pain and grief. It's called lament. Mark Vrogop, in his fantastic book, Deep Clouds, or Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, defines lament as this. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. You might think lament is the opposite of praise. It isn't. Instead, lament is a path to praise as we are led through our brokenness and disappointment. Lament is a path to praise, and it leads us through brokenness and disappointment. God welcomes us in the midst of grief and trouble. He is the opposite of the Persian kings who want to keep grief and trouble outside the palace walls. Our king welcomes us in our sackcloth and in our ashes and with our wails and bitter cries. And he teaches us how to do so in a way that praises him, not in spite of the bitter providences of life, but in the very midst of them. I mean, take a look at some of these psalms where God teaches us to say things like God 
Are you going to revive me so that I may rejoice in you? Psalm 85. Are you God, God, are you going to keep being angry with us forever? Are those who don't love you going to keep on sailing through life while you prolong your anger against us? Also Psalm 85. God, you've put me in the depths and your waves overwhelm me. Your face is hidden from me. Everyone shuns me. Darkness is like my only friend. Psalm 88. Or how about Psalm 13? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, try praying that at small group later this week. And too often, you'll begin to start feeling like everyone's eyes are darting around, wondering if you can say things like that. Because we forget that you're lamenting the way God taught you to. And, we for, and when we forget that, we often, ask, uh, offer, we often offer pat answers and superficial solutions, which at times in churches like ours can even become moments that we think God and his character need defending. And so we say things like, God is sovereign, or this will all work out for good, while we hop back in to our life where that pain is not present. Brothers and sisters, the way you handle people's grief and pain and trouble can either bolster their faith or bludgeon it. And even in the Advent season, amongst the holiday cheer, many of us and many of you, many of those around you, are hiding grief and trouble. They're sorrowful, missing loved ones, had a tough 2023, aren't sure how the dominoes are falling the way they are falling. And the way you handle people's grief can either bolster their faith or bludgeon it. And we can speak truth to the grieving, and we should. But only after we've wept with them and have been walking with them through it, allowing God's word to give voice to their lamenting praise of him. And so remember, lamenting is actually holding on to God's sovereignty. You'll only lament if you believe God is who he says he is and can do something about your pain. Lamenting is holding on to God's sovereignty, and it's actually holding on to God's sovereignty in the pain of living in a broken world. We can help bolster our grieving brothers and sisters' faith as we use God's path of lament to move them from hopelessness into hope. And we see that Esther's first response to Mordecai's grief doesn't move the needle for him. And so he sends Hathik to find out what's going on. Or she sends Hathik to find out what's going on. And Mordecai sends him back with the edict along with the message of all that's gone down and commands Esther to go to the king and beg and plead for mercy. To beg and plead with him for her people. In other words, I along with all of God's people, which includes you, don't forget, need you, Esther, to get us a new lease on life. Now, for her entire life, Esther hasn't identified as part of God's people. Why? Because Mordecai told her not to. And now he tells her to do what he's always told her not to do in the very moment when doing so would put her under the death sentence, which she just heard for the first time moments before. Mordecai 
It's not really helping out his niece Esther at all. And then she reminds him in one of her responses, see this like going back and forth, back and forth. She says, you know what, Mordecai? You know. Everyone knows. I might not even get a chance to beg and plead because no one is allowed into the king's presence unless he calls for them. And I haven't been called in 30 days. And if you show up uninvited and the king doesn't hold out his scepter to you, you're dead. And then I wouldn't be any help to you or anyone else at all. And Esther, again, is not sure Ahasuerus would extend that scepter to her. Mordecai asks Esther, in other words, to face two death sentences. He's doubling it up for her. You're a Jew, you're going to die. Let's put you in front of the king too, uninvited. And let's see what happens. And in doing so, Mordecai's grief shatters the peace of the palace. But why are these dominoes falling? Well, it's thirdly to reveal the need for a mediator. A need for a mediator. When Mordecai hears Esther's response, he sends Hathak back with his reply in verse 13. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, if you ask people who don't normally find themselves in churches on Sunday about the story of Esther, they probably know a little bit of it, and they probably know this line, don't they? This is probably the most famous line in this book. And it finally begins to shine a light on all the dominoes that have so, so far fallen without much commentary. I like how Christopher Ash puts it. He says this, Who knows? Maybe the reason Vashti defied the king and got banished years before didn't just happen. Perhaps the reason the king's advisors suggested a competition in Esther 1 wasn't just chance. Maybe all this happened for a purpose, so that Esther can mediate with the king for her people at this desperate time of need. And Mordecai begins to define for Esther and for us readers that the fallen dominoes are the providential acts of God's hidden hand. Because God promised Abraham that his children would be more numerous than the sand on the seashore, that his offspring would be more numerous than the stars in the sky, and that the whole world would be blessed through him. Relief and deliverance for God's people will arrive from someplace. Mordecai believes in spite of all the events he can see and in spite of all the edicts he can hear that there is a greater power that will not allow his people to be annihilated. So who knows, Esther? Maybe the reason you're in the place you are is to be God's mediator for God's people. And because Mordecai knows what he's asking Esther to do, and these responses show how Esther is grappling with it, he says, you must identify now, at this moment, with God's people. 
For that, actually, Esther, is the safest place in the world. I, I don't actually think Mordecai is threatening Esther in verse 14 that the way it may sound. I mean, in one sense, he's actually part of his, her father's house. <laughs> so I, I don't think he's, he's putting the... He's, he's not threatening her that he's going to... I mean, who's going to kill her? No one can figure out exactly the syntax of what Mordecai is saying and how, the, how this could really be a threat. It could be, but I think it's, it's better to see that Mordecai is actually preaching the gospel to Esther. He's preaching the gospel beforehand to her. <laughs> that the only safe place in all the world is with God and his people. And to have faith in God's promises in spite of what we see and hear. In spite of what we always can see and hear with our eyes. Our eyes of faith show that the safest place in all the world is with God and his people. And so he's not threatening her so much as he's preaching the gospel to her. And now Hathak heads back to Esther with Mordecai's reply, and we read her response beginning in verse 15. She says, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish... I perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now this is a remarkably courageous act. And think of all that Esther's been through and that has brought her to this moment which she didn't choose and which now has been thrust upon her. For someone who had hid her identity for their entire life to now so openly embrace it at the most dangerous time, is a courageous act. And we, too, face increasing danger in openly identifying as a child of God in a culture that's increasingly antagonistic to God and his word. And maybe at times you have or will feel like you're between a rock and a hard place with where God's providence has you. But we have the benefit of being able to look back on the fallen dominoes in Esther. And that benefit for us transforms the phrase, who knows, into we know. With Mordecai's beginning to preach the gospel and shine a light on God's great promises, we begin to see the transformation of the phrase who knows into we know, right? Who knows? Ah, we know. We know the events of our lives aren't go governed by chance or happenstance, but by God's sovereign providence. We know Esther didn't just happen to be in the palace, but was there because God was at work, even years before. Most likely, according to the timeline that we can decipher in Esther, nine years before his people even knew they needed saving, God got Esther into the place where she could be the mediator for his people. I mean, God was at work even before they had any hint they would need saving. Which means, brothers and sisters, Esther is much more than just a courageous woman, which she is. And she points us to a greater mediator 
who would go into the place of power and judgment to not just mediate for his people, to not just beg and plead for mercy, but to actually be himself his people's deliverance. You see, Esther points us to her bravery and the fact that she faced the possibility of death. But Esther's actions point us to the great mediator who God sent to face certain death, not just its possibility. For Jesus was born to die. And Jesus' birth wasn't just by chance or happenstance. It was providential for such a time as ours. Listen to Galatians 4. Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, when just the right moment, when we needed in such a time as this, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, God sent our Savior. Yes, Esther and Mordecai teach us about living as God's people, that even when we can't see God's hidden hand behind all the providence of the events at work, we can still trust him. Even if we can't see him, we, we know he's not absent. That yes, he might have us in certain places for such a time as he's put you there for the glory of his name. But Esther and Mordecai teach us something greater. That we're people who need a mediator to bring us out of the judgment our sins deserve to bring us back into the presence we long and were made for but cannot get in because of our sins. And for such a time as this, God sent the great mediator, Jesus. And it's during Advent that we celebrate that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son to accomplish much more than the deliverance from an evil government edict for a specific moment in history. Jesus accomplished the salvation of all of God's people in all times and places from the death sentence of sin. And God worked through Esther to deliver his people, but at some point or another in their lives, each one of those people in the empire's 127 provinces died. They died still awaiting the final fulfillment of God's covenant promises. They died still awaiting for the promised coming one who would bring them ultimately from life, from death to life. But for those whose faith is in Jesus, the great mediator makes death just a doorway into eternal life. Jesus is the one Esther points to and her mediating for her people in a place of power and judgment. And friends, I don't know why you think you're here this morning. But I know the God who controls all the dominoes that got you here into that seat on this morning to hear of his plan to send the greater mediator to redeem his people from sin and death once and for all. And so we don't just celebrate sentimentality during December, but the birth of the Son who was born to die and be our great mediator who was born to face certain death so that his people might live. 
And so we pray that this morning you would have eyes to see the glory of our great mediator, Jesus Christ, and find your life in him today. And brothers and sisters, may Esther's bravery not only give us hope in our world today, but the greater hope that no matter how the dominoes fall, we have a greater mediator whose strong and perfect plea, the strong and perfect plea of his life, death, and resurrection has actually won our salvation. Your mediator has clothed you in his spotless righteousness. And so go out rejoicing, for your name is graven on your mediator's hands. The mediator who didn't just risk the possibility of death for you, but laid his life certainly down for you, so that you might live with him forevermore. Let's pray.